right, we are in chapter 8. Like I said last week, we have spent, I think we had a, for, uh, the first couple chapters were introductory, kind of understanding the whole idea of inductive Bible study and the stages of observation, interpretation, and application. And so uh, the next three, chapter 3 through chapter 7, we were talking about observation. I know it was a lot, a lot of information just dumped to understand different features, literary features, literary units, different ideas we need to keep in mind as we seek to observe the text and lay everything out on the table. But now in chapter 8, we're going to move to that interpretation stage, which is really um, the heart of why I wanted to do a study like this is this idea of hermeneutics, which is rightly understanding, rightly interpreting God's word. And so um, we're going to talk about interpretation for the next, I think there's five chapters we're going to see, and then we'll have a couple chapters at the end about application, which is important as well. It's not enough just to observe God's word, rightly interpret it. We have to move to that step of of application, but we've got to take them one step at a time. So we're going to talk about considering the context. We Touched on this a little bit in the introduction. We talked about various gaps to our understanding of Scripture. Um, Gaps in history, gaps in literature, gaps in theology. We fleshed a lot of those out. This is going to start getting into how we can understand um, different ideas of context, okay? So before we get to that, though, I do want to just show, and it might be small on the screen. I think I have it there in your notes. Just an overview of what we're going to do through this unit focused on interpretation. So this morning, we're considering the context, the historical, literary, and theological kinds of context. Then we'll move on to interpretive correlation, that's comparing Scripture with Scripture. Then determining the meaning of words and phrases, this will be lexical and contextual analysis. And then we're going to do thematic correlation, synthesizing relevant motifs for topical study. And then the last uh, unit in this interpretation part is consultation. This is where we're going to use research tools to enhance our study of the text, okay? So I think it's good to get a big picture view of where we're moving. Um, And then even as you have questions, maybe you say, well, I had a question about this, but it looks like we're going to accomplish that in another chapter, okay? So quick introduction to um, this morning, uh, three keys to thinking contextually. So that's what we're talking about all morning is context. Context is key when it comes to rightly interpreting Scripture. Anybody can pull a verse. We talked about this in the beginning. Pull a verse out of Scripture, put it on a coffee mug, personalize it without understanding the context. So context is so crucial to rightly interpreting God's Word. And there's three keys I think we're going to see even as we walk through these various aspects of context that we need to be uh, aware of. The first one is awareness. So we need to have an awareness of the need to think contextually and an awareness of the various kinds of contexts that need to be considered. So it starts with recognizing God's word is not just a bunch of feel-good verses that we can pull one at a time, like uh, you know fortune cookie things that we're just taking one verse at a time. There's a context, and we're going to talk about that. So we need to be aware as we're reading that there's context we need to be aware of. Okay. The second one is perception. This is the wisdom to discern, to discern the variables, to possess sensitivity, to know to what degree context should or shouldn't influence interpretive conclusions. So this is helping to understand how does the context shape our understanding of Scripture, or sometimes maybe the context, um, you know, we don't want to read too much into the context in certain ways as well. Okay? So awareness, perception, the third one is knowledge. 
the knowledge of biblical background pertaining to historical events, geography and culture, literary genres, and theological motifs. So we're going to have to grow in this knowledge. This is part of what we're going to really focus on today is how we can uh, grow in our interpretive skills to grow in understanding the context. Okay, A quote from the book, The more you're able to apply your growing knowledge of background information, whether in history, literature, or theology, to the consideration of context, the more completely you'll interpret Scripture. So we're going to grow, seek to grow in these areas of understanding the context in history, literature, and theology. Okay, There's a great, we've talked about this in the first couple chapters. There are lots of takeaways. Don't be overwhelmed if you're new to Bible study or you don't feel like, you know, if you feel like some of this is over your head. The great thing is you can start wherever you're at and you can build on that knowledge and grow. Okay? So with that, I want to, and I knew it wouldn't be easy to see on the screen, and that's why you've got a couple pages uh, stapled together, because I wanted you to see um, this view of what the book calls the hermeneutical triad. Okay? And I believe... Um, one of the authors of the book, Kostenberger, uh, wrote a book just, just about interpretation, uh, hermeneutics, and this was the basis of that book, the hermeneutical triad. And so that was one, as I thought about this idea of hermeneutics, I looked at that book, but I like this one because, again, it has the idea of observation and application, not just solely interpretation. So this is what we're going to break down this morning, the hermeneutical triad, which you see there at the top. And, there, and really, there's no necessary order. We're going to go through a certain order, but um, there's various contexts to consider. The main three are theological, historical, and literary. And even within those, there are various types of contexts we want to understand. And so we're going to walk through each of those. Um, and as you see, I think I put this quote in, in there, um, but it's important to understand. We've talked about this even with different literary features they don't always fit neatly in one category. And so the same is true when it comes to context. When we're looking at a context of a passage, many times you're going to see really all three of these at play, and, and you're going to have to consider the context in each of these areas as you come to the text. So the, the book kind of lays that out. that says, just as the sides of the triad function in relation to one another, so this would be between theological, literary, and, and um, historical, so just as those sides relate to one another, so these kinds of contexts function interdependently. In virtually all examples where you might cite the relevance of context, there's more than one aspect of, of context impacting the proper interpretation of the text. A comprehensive approach to context will consider the impact of each kind of context every time one embarks on the interpretation of Scripture. So when we're coming to a passage, we're keeping all these aspects of the context in mind. Okay? So let's walk through these, and, and that's, yeah, I put it on the screen, I forgot, the hermeneutical triad in that quote. And so let's walk through these aspects. We're going to start with historical context, okay? Historical context. And there's two levels of context we need to be aware of when it comes to history, okay? One is the context of the events reflected in Scripture, and the other is the context surrounding the development of the text itself. So let me ask this question. I've got, I know, last several weeks there was a lot of information. I didn't have a lot of time to ask questions, so I tried to encourage or put some questions in here. What do you think the difference between these two are? What's the difference between the context of the events reflected in Scripture 
and the context surrounding the development of the text itself. You see the difference here? Yeah. Okay. It you're 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 on the right track. The first part is spot on. It's the first one is here's the event that happened. So let's go to, you know, first, second Samuel and something with David. This is what happened. Okay. The second is the idea of when it was written. So um, in some ways, there's not going to be a big difference between these, but uh, they give a couple examples in the book. So the first one is First and Second Chronicles covers a large period of time, several hundred years. Okay, But when First, Chronicle, First and Second Chronicles were written, these events had already passed. So this might have been hundreds of years later that they're actually starting to write down these events. Not that there probably wasn't some record, but when they're actually going about the inspired work of writing God's word, as the Holy Spirit's inspiring them, some time has passed. And so, as that time's passed, the historical context may have changed. There may be new geopolitical uh, aspects at play. There's just different things that we have to consider as separate from the events themselves. Does this make sense? You guys following? So, yeah, First Chronicles might have recorded because this happened in history, but when it's being written, there's a purpose for which it's written. Another example, um, and this is one that you really wouldn't see a difference here, are the epistles. The epistles are written to a people in a time frame, and so they're written directly in in light of what's happening in their circumstances, right? So as Paul writes different epistles or other uh, authors are writing different epistles, there's really no distinguishment between these two types of contexts. Does that make sense? However, think about the Gospels. Okay, there is going to be a difference with the Gospels. So let me just read this quote from the book because I like the way they explain it. In contrast to the epistles, an awareness of these two levels of historical context is vitally important in the interpretation of the Gospels where the events of Jesus' life are separated from the text by two or three decades. Again, the way in which the events are depicted along with the theological emphasis within the text is influenced by the setting of the evangelist and his original audience. A great deal of geopolitical, cultural, and religious movement occurred in the decades following the life of Christ, and therefore, we must be aware of those historical differences between the original set of events recorded in the Gospels and circumstances at the time of their composition. So I hope this makes it clear. When the Gospel writers are writing, it's two or three decades after the events happened, and so politically things have changed. Culturally, things may have changed. So we want to be aware of those potential changes when we're considering the historical context. That's all the book's trying to point out. Any questions about that? Hopefully that's clear enough. Just something to keep in mind, okay? All right. So let's break down the three aspects of historical context. The first one is geopolitical context, okay? The meaning is this is the historical, political, and geographical setting of the events reflected within a given portion of of scripture, okay? So political, geographical uh, settings, historical, political, geographical um, of what's going on in these events, okay? So what are the challenges in seeking to understand the geopolitical context of a passage? What would be the challenges of trying to understand this context? Absolutely. And we, we have, a, you know, Western 
eyes are very different from even the way they function in that part of the world today. So, yeah, geographically, we're far removed. What else? What other challenges are there? Yeah, different customs that they would have had that we're not familiar with. Politically, different political powers. Um, you know, we're so used to democracy and, and different forms of, of uh, politics and um, different forms of government that are out there today. So there's lots of things, and we talked a little bit about this the first couple weeks, about the different gaps. But it's a challenge. We have to uh, be aware that these are things that are going to be separated. We need to try to understand the context of what's going on here. Um, sometimes the text itself will give us details about uh, the geopolitical context. It might talk about Rome's in power or Persia or whatever it may be. Um, other times there's not explicit to the text, and so then we have to look at outside history. We have to do research in the historical realm of what was going on in that time uh, of history, human history, okay? An example of why this is important is Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. If you want to turn there, uh, it'll be a good example to look at. And again, we're so quick to skip to that application stage that we fail to properly observe and, and then properly interpret the text in light of this context. And this might be a situation where Understanding the context gives uh, more depth, more richness to what God's communicating. Okay? Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. So this is uh, one, of or one of Isaiah's oracles, specifically about Egypt. And so look at verse 23 to 25. It says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, we might read that and not really think much of it, but when we understand a little bit of the geopolitical context of this, what we realize is Egypt and Assyria are fierce enemies. They're fierce rivals. And Israel is really a rival to both and stuck in the middle of Egypt and Assyria. And so they're that middle ground. A comparison to something we might be a little more familiar with would be that of World War II when you have Germany and Russia who are enemies and Poland is located in between and there's a lot of battles going on uh, for Poland. And so this is the context of what this passage is referencing. And so we understand Egypt, Assyria enemies, Israel's enemies with them, this has a lot more power to it, that God is saying, he's prophesying, there's going to be a day when Egypt and Assyria, there's a highway running between them, meaning they're trade partners, they're working together, um, they're, they're a blessing, uh, Israel's there in the middle of them, it's a three-way uh, treaty almost, or three-way alliance, um, and they're blessings, and, and then look what God says, um, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So it gives a little more weight to what God's communicating when we understand the geopolitical context, that God's prophesying a future day, really his kingdom, when 
people have trusted him, people are looking to him, and these nations are not at war anymore, right? They're working together, and the people of Egypt, the people of Assyria, Israel are all believers in him, okay? So an example of how, why that geopolitical context is important, okay? The next one is to consider is cultural context, okay? So not just the, the political aspect of world powers, things like that, but this is the customs and manners of biblical cultures, including their religious mores and expectations. So you mentioned that, Bob, that part of the challenge is understanding there's different customs. Even if we were to go to a different part of the world today, there's going to be different customs, a different way of thinking. You know, one that comes to mind, a lot of um, Eastern cultures, it's a no-no to walk in the house with your shoes on, right? You're supposed to take your shoes off. And in America, some houses we might do that, um, but a lot of times it's not a big deal. So there's all kinds of different customs. And then when we remove the, when we, we realize how far removed uh, in a time sense we are, that just adds to the challenge of understanding the cultural context. But we need to be aware of this, okay? The book says we'd like to register a note of caution at this juncture. In spite of the potential danger of misreading Scripture through Western eyes, we must also avoid the temptation of reading too much into unlocking the text through cultural keys. It's common to hear preaching that taps into cultural insights with little actual evidence to back up the claims. Okay? So we want to seek to understand the customs. We want to seek to understand this aspect of cultural context, but we don't want to just read too too much into it if that makes sense so just a word of caution they put there so why is it why is understanding the cultural context of a passage so important why is understanding the cultural context of a passage so important we can say so important to rightly interpreting god's word uh-huh yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, to know that Jesus, you know, they in that day went, usually went around Samaria to avoid it, and yet he goes straight through Samaria. As a rabbi, they saw it as a waste of time to talk to women. That's just their view. Yet here he is engaging her, a Samaritan, immoral and yet yeah you see the beauty when you see the cultural context you understand the impact of what of that of that uh, interaction absolutely a couple other examples first peter 113 you don't have to turn there but it talks about girding up the loins of your mind there's a cultural context that if you've been in church you probably understand that you've probably been uh, a, a pastor or a teacher shared what the meaning of that is but um does anyone know what is the context of girding up the loins of your mind? What does that even mean? Do we gird up our loins in any way today? Does anyone know? Does any, has anyone ever had that context shared? Okay, that would be a way of culturally equivocating that idea in a sense, yeah. But let's think about in that day and age, what did it actually mean? Preparing for battle? A little more specific. Right. 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 Exactly. So you're absolutely right. Preparing for battle, we got to keep going to what did that actually look like? 
and it wasn't, they didn't have the pants. Like you said, that's a great cultural equivalency, but understand the context of what that meant is they've got this, this robe, and they're pulling it up, they're tugging, they're getting ready, right? They're preparing themselves. So having that picture, now we understand a little better. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready, prepare yourself, right? Another one's 1 Corinthians 11. I do want you to turn there if you can, 1 Corinthians 11. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I just want you to see the importance of understanding cultural context. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read verses 4 through 16. Uh, Beginning there in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair to sh- or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women. Uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Okay? And then it just says, but if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So here, see a very specific cultural context at play in Corinth, okay? Um, and, and, you know, we could spend the whole time breaking this passage down. But just understand, these things aren't going to directly translate over to our culture today, okay? There is an aspect of universal truth in this passage. What did it reference as a universal truth? Okay, everything comes from God. We look at verse uh, verse nine. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So I waft, and then it goes on. Um, verse twelve: For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Um, there's another verse. Oh, verse seven: For man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But woman's glory of man. Um, and then it goes on: For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. So there's an aspect of where it's pointing back to the original created order of man and woman, and that man's to have authority over woman in that way, in that role. Not, uh, not that they're not equal, right? But it's a, a structure of authority. And so there's an aspect of that universal practice, but I think Paul's applying that culturally. So in light of that created order of a man having authority over the woman, um, the practice is the man's not covering his head, the woman is... And a lot of that cultural idea is in Corinth, a lot of people, there was temple prostitution. And women would shave their heads uh, as a temple prostitute. And so you can imagine as people were being saved out of that lifestyle and coming into the church, you see a woman in the church that has a shaved head, you know what her previous life was like, and that could cause some contention. And so 
there to cover their head or, as he says there, or shave it off so that there's not a distinguishment between people. And we could dive in more to the context, but I want you to see that as an example of it's important we understand the cultural context. Some will just say, there are churches that say, see, Scripture says a woman needs to have her head covered in the church, and there are many churches that still practice as a woman. You come in, you're wearing a head covering. Um, we could probably even apply it. Some people say, you know, and I know it's kind of a cultural practice today, but having a baseball hat on, you're supposed to take that off before you pray. Well, I don't know that this is a passage that really points that way. It's a cultural thing today, so I can understand why we practice it. But um, we've got to be careful not just to take things and apply them directly to our culture. We have to understand the cultural context, okay? We've got to keep moving. We are we got to fly. I'm going to try to get through all these today. If not, we'll circle back next week. The next one is situational context, okay, when it comes to the culture. These are the events that take place in biblical narrative were, uh, were occasioned by other events and circumstances in the world of the Bible, okay? So sit, what's the situation going on, the circumstances, and that may shed light into why something happened a certain way. So great example is Acts 2. And this was interesting. I don't know that I'd ever thought through the aspects of the situational context of this passage. And so I, I appreciated they laid it out, and I put a quote in here from the book because I think they explain it well. But in Acts 2, 42 to 45, very familiar passage. A lot of people have trusted Christ, uh, over 3,000 after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So we'll stop there. Some people will take this passage, and without understanding the situational context, they may say, see, uh, we should all be uh, communal, communism, socialism. That's what is taught here. Nobody really counted anything themselves. They just all piled it in, and that's just the prescription for all of us as believers. Well, are there aspects I think we can pull from this text to say we should care for one another's needs? As we see needs from other believers, we should seek to meet those needs. Absolutely. But here's the situational context that helps shed light onto what is being described here. I'm going to read it straight from the book. So they say, First century Jerusalem attracted Jews from throughout the Roman Empire with many who had traveled from afar for the Feast of Pentecost. So we know this is a Pentecost, I think 50 days from the Passover. So a lot of people are coming in from out of town to Jerusalem. And upon hearing the disciples speaking in their own diverse languages, so they're from various parts of the world, they have distinct languages, they're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this. They hear this miraculous sign of the disciples speaking the word of God in their language. Um, and hearing Peter's explanation of these things, some 3,000 believed and were added to them. These new believers didn't disband immediately, but rather devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. While not all converts were pilgrims to Jerusalem, many were, requiring, requiring support as they remained in Jerusalem post-Pentecost to learn from the apostles before dispersing to their homelands. First century travelers didn't carry credit cards or use ATM machines, and for those of limited means who had only intended on a short stay for Pentecost, the generosity of the community of believers was needed for daily sustenance. Without undermining the importance of selfless generosity within the early church, 
The situational context must be considered if we are properly to understand the scope and implications of what takes place. So understanding that, these people are they're only intending to come for a short time. They hear the gospel, they're saved, they trust Christ. Uh, they want to stay and hear more from the apostles, and I think that was the desire. Let's equip these people before they go back to their homelands and share the gospel as the gospel spreads. But they, don't, they didn't bring enough for, you know, they just imagine you planned an overnight trip and you only took one change of clothes. Um, and again, this is a day and age you don't have credit cards. You can't go to the store and buy more if you didn't have it with you. And so you, you see the people pulling together, let's provide for the needs so they can hear. And this isn't necessarily prescriptive of let's all be socialist and pull everything together. Again, not to neglect the heart of the early church was to see a need and to try to meet it. And that's, I think that's the heart of that. But understanding the situational context helps us to understand what is being communicated there. We could look at the book of Acts as a whole as well. And the book says this, genre comes into play here as well. Remember that Acts is a historical narrative, and so we should interpret the book primarily in terms of what happened in the first days of the church, which is a descriptive element, which may or may not necessarily be required for believers of all ages, a prescriptive element. So this is a, this is a really important aspect, especially with the book of Acts or a lot of stuff in the early church. So many times we want to read the book of Acts and just automatically say, okay, this is what God is telling us we should be doing this for all time. And so when we get into tongues, healing, these, these sign gifts, which we believe were for a specific time, God's uh, bringing in the new covenant. He's communicating that Jesus is who he said he was. The, you know, God's word is being written, so it's a demonstration that God is the one speaking. This isn't just man's words. So a lot of this is not necessarily prescriptive, okay? This is what we should be doing here and now. Of course, there are elements of God's word we can draw application from. But we have to look at, especially the book of Acts, is it's descriptive. It's describing the history of what happened. So we don't want to always jump so quickly to the prescriptive aspect without understanding, well, these are, this is just describing what happened. And, of course, as we seek to understand the context, that's when we can properly apply God's word, okay? Uh, the book also goes on to say, other books have a less obvious connection to situational context, yet no biblical text was written in a vacuum. Understanding the biography of the author, his purpose and intent for writing, and the general circumstances of the recipients all play a role in the interpretation of Scripture. So we could take this to the book of Acts. We know it's written by Luke. If we understand his background, he's a physician. Um, he's not Jewish. He's writing, and he says it in the very beginning of Acts. Uh, he's writing to Theophilus. Um, He'd written Luke. This is kind of a sequel to Luke's gospel. So he's writing Acts. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So it goes on. He's saying, okay, the last book I told you about everything Jesus did in his life leading up to his death and resurrection. And now I'm going to start to lay out, here's what happened in the early church. Um, so he's writing to an individual, and understanding his background, his purpose, and intent helps us to understand this aspect of situational context, okay? I'm going to go ahead and land the plane here, but before we get to the next, next two aspects, 
of literary context and theological context, because I know I tend to go into, I, we try to shoot for 20 till, because people pile up if we go past 20 till, but are there any questions before we wrap up this aspect? We're going to talk about literary context and theological context next week.